0: Celebration of the Risen Lord, and that's what we do when we come here on Sunday mornings. But this week in particular, this is the week that we remember that Christ entered uh, to Jerusalem uh, triumphantly. He enters, and by the by Friday, he will be hanging naked on a tree uh, for the judgment of God upon sin and the redemption of mankind. And I'm 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 excited to to uh, remind you all that tonight uh, Elder Tom Cox will be preaching tonight at 6 for our D3. We'll have uh, doctrine, he'll be preaching, and then we will have discussion, and then we will have dessert. We are, I think we're doing brownies this, this week, so if you like brownies, uh, make sure that you come out tonight as we hear the preaching of God's Word. And then on Thursday night, I'll be in the pulpits preaching on uh, the uh, Last Supper and the Arrest of our Lord and Savior on Friday night. I'll be preaching on the crucifixion, and then Sunday we will gather. and uh, The title of my sermon is "The Sunday Walk." I will be preaching on the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and uh, and I am excited with the opportunity to be able to be in God's house all these nights this week, and starting with today. Uh, with that said, I want to rem- uh, just make an announcement that there. Awana and uh, youth activities on Wednesday night uh, will be canceled this week. There won't be any of those on Wednesday night, and uh, and we'll pick up at the week after that. And today we are um, back in uh, our uh, sermon series. This is the last sermon on um, the tribulation, but not the end of the end is near series. This is the last. We have walked through and seen the seven seals opened. We have uh, heard the seven trumpets, and now we are in the seven bowls. And we will be going into sixth and seventh bowl today. But before we go there, I I just want to I was asked a question this week. And and, uh, again, when you go through the book of Revelation, you can't hit every subject when you're going through a a mini series like this. I, I went week by week. Uh, for a year through the book of Revelation on a Monday night. That was years ago. Um, that is online. Uh, I went expositionally through verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Uh, this has not been that. We have given an overview of, of this. We, first we talked about the rapture of the church and then we, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ and then we talked about the seven years of tribulation which we're going to finish up with today. But there's a, there's a thing that always seems to be in people's minds about of um, Gog and Magog. When does that happen? And there's a couple of references to it in Scripture. Who, you know, what, what's what's going on here? Well, there's two references in Scripture to Gog and Magog, and they are in um, the Book of Revelation. Reveals to us that that uh, there there is going to be a time when Gog and Magog uh, fight. The armies of Gog and Magog fight the God, and that's at the end of the millennial period. But before that, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapters 38 and 39, we know that there's going to be a battle now, sometime in the near future. And when I say near future, right after the tribulation period starts. The, the, the Bible tells us that Ezekiel, in, the, in the book of Ezekiel, there'll be a time of peace for Israel, and then Gog and Magog will come and evade Israel. But God will preserve Israel during this time, and he'll use the Antichrist to do that. And remember, the Antichrist is making peace with Israel in the first three and a half years, and so that will be established. And so that is the first encounter that we have with Gog and Magog. And then later on in the book of Revelation, it is brought up again. And so why was it brought up again, and how can they be the same people? Well, they're not. It's not the same people. The Gog and Magog represent all those who are rebellious against God at the end of the millennial kingdom. And that's the reference to it. So I hope that has some clarification for you if you have any questions about that. Um, it's, 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 it's something not to be uh, con- concerned about uh, because the Bible is not contradicting itself. Ezekiel is talking about a different event than the book of Revelation. I was listening to a sermon here just recently uh, by Steve Lawson And uh, I read one where he was talking about, he was preaching to preachers. And in that sermon, he said, remember, Pastor, the only perfect thing you do on Sunday mornings is when you open the book and you read from the Word of God. That's the only perfect thing about my sermon today. And would you stand with me as we honor the preaching of God's Word, as we hear God speak to us, we're in Revelation Chapter 16, as we continue in the bowl judgments, Revelation chapter 16, starting in verse 12. Revelation 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river of the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And then I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons doing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in the Hebrew is called Har Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. And so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty, and the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon, the great, was re- remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the wrath of his rage. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about one talent each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because of the plague was extremely severe. And Father God, your people have gathered here this morning. We have song praises to your name, Lord. We have lifted you on high, Father. And as a mere man stands before your people this morning, and Father, as we have read from the book, Lord, I pray that this would be encouragement to my brothers and sisters in Christ. An encouragement and a challenge, Father, for us to remember that you have sent your Son to die for our sins. And because we are your people, Father, we will not face this wrath that you have against this world. And Father, but I pray for the one who does not know you today. And Father, this would be the day of salvation. And Lord, this would be the day that you turn a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, that a man or woman today, in the sound of my voice, would repent of their sins, trust in your Son for salvation alone. And Father, I pray all this, that you would receive the glory for it, that your will would be done, in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. So here we move into the 6th and 7th bowl judgments. It's on. The battery may be dead. The battery is dead. Okay. I can't move. Well, I never move anyway. Um, this is okay when it's 8 o'clock service. It ain't okay when we're on live, right? So 6th and 7th bowl Judgments. So the sixth bowl, we see it in verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, the bowl is poured out and we are told of its purpose. It prepares the way for the kings of the east. Then in verse 13 and 16 through 16, we are given a, a commentary on this judgment. First, there is divine activity. Followed up by increased demonic activity. We see that in verses 12 through 14. And then there's the effect of this on human activity in verse 14. For they are spirits of demons doing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now I've titled this sermon, The Battle, and it's, a, it's basically a precursor, if you will, a, a prologue into what's going to happen the next time we gather together to, to preach from the book of Revelation. As Again, as I told you, next week we will be uh, celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the following week, Kathy and I will be uh, in California. We're going out to visit our son out there in California. Uh, he's stationed uh, near Fort Beale. Air Force Base in Sacramento. And we're going to spend the week out there. And so uh, Brother Zach is going to come and fill that pulpit uh, on the Sunday after Easter. And so three weeks from this Sunday, we will resume with the battle itself. This is a a precursor to it. And so what we're doing is we're setting up that battle, that battle of Armageddon, where Christ returns. And so as we see this... uh, Demonic activity, we see divine activity in verses 15 and 16. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And so here we see that God is uh, protecting his people, and I want to go into some detail in here how this relates to us today. And so here we have that the great river Euphrates, literally the Greek says, the river, the great one, Euphrates. This word order and the word great stresses the prominence of this river in this passage of Scripture. This is the largest river in Western Asia and has figured largely in history and prophecy the the river Euphrates. And let me share with you some important facts about this great river. It formed the eastern boundary of ancient Rome and its conquest. So if, if you know anything about your ancient history, you know that Rome basically went east up to the Euphrates River and it stopped there. And so that was the boundary of Roman conquest. It forms the eastern boundary of the land promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 verse 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 7. And for a brief season, David and Solomon extended the authority uh, to the uh, Euphrates River as well in 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 21. And this river is 1,800 miles long and has always stood as a natural barrier separating east from the west. The river forms in Armenia, and 1,800 miles later, it empties into the Persian Gulf. And about 90 miles before it empties into the Persian Gulf, uh, it is joined by the Tigris River. And what's the purpose of this river drying up? Well, to facilitate the movement of the troops of the Oriental kings of the Eastern Confederacy for the final battle of Armageddon. That's what God does. He, he, he dries this river up so that these armies can move unhindered. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 15, and Zechariah 10, verse 11. Isaiah eleven fifteen 15, and Zechariah 10, 11 are similar prophecies of the drying up of this river for this very purpose. So here you have it prophesied in the Old Testament by, the, by Isaiah and by Zechariah and here in the book of Revelation. God says, this is what's going to happen. And the kings from the east is literally the the kings from the rising sun. When it says kings from the east, it means the kings from the rising sun. Uh, This is a a poetic expression signifying the king is from where the sun rises. China, Japan, India, Persia, Afghanistan. All these cities, uh, these nations are east of Israel. So here we see God's divine activity, God acting in his sovereignty, using the wrath and rebellion of Satan himself and man to carry out his own purpose. Remember what we said through this whole uh, study in the book of Revelation as, as we've gone through the tribulation period. All of this is done at the sovereign will of God. This has not happened by happenstance. It is all happening because God ordains it to happen. So again, we see this divine activity. Uh, The Lord will dry up this natural barrier for the invasion of the land of Palestine. In verses 13 and 14, we see this demonic activity that's expressed here. It is God's purpose to deal with the nations in judgment in the land of Palestine. Remember, this is all about God pouring out His wrath upon this sinful world that has rejected Him. Lesson after lesson after lesson after lesson through the book of Revelation, through the seven seals, through the seven trumpets, through the five bowls that we have gone through already, are all for what purpose? For God to pour out his wrath upon an evil man, and yet they still reject God and will not repent of their sins. And see, knowing Satan's purposes and objectives, God will use him and his demonic activity To inspire the nations to move against Palestine. So the immediate source of this activity, acting on their own objectives, is the Trinity from hell. Remember, they are the counterfeit. We've talked about that. We have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's Satan, the dragon, Satan, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, who work miracles on behalf of the first beast. The means of accomplishing this are three demonic spirits who proceed from the trinity of hell to go out into the nations working these miraculous signs. They will go out and convince people, even more people, of their power and they will use that to rebel. Exactly what these signs were not told, Scripture doesn't tell us, but undoubtedly they somehow stir up this old desire and hostility against the Jews. Remember that the Jews... Have been persecuted ever since Abraham. When God called Abraham, they have been persecuted. There ha- the Satan has tried to kill God's people ever since he uh, Abraham came to be chosen by God. Of all the people groups in the world, there are the Jews still remaining. Doesn't matter whether it was the Assyrians who tried to get rid of them. It wasn't. It didn't matter if it was the Ninevites. It didn't matter if it was the Romans. It didn't, you know, when they conquered Jerusalem. It didn't matter. If it was the Arabs, the Muslims, that came in and tried to destroy the Jews. In the Middle Ages, it wasn't Nazi Germany who tried to eradicate the Jews and everything that they stood for. He, all these, God has saved the remnant of His people. He has brought them home to Israel, and this is God's divine purpose to restore his people in Israel. To restore and give them the promised land that has never been occupied and fulfilled by God's people ever since the promise was. The only time that will happen is in the millennial kingdom when God establishes the kingdom and establishes Jesus' rule upon this earth or in the millennial kingdom which you and I and every other believer who, who has lived will be with Christ and will rule with Christ during the millennial kingdom. If you haven't, if, you, if, if you're not caught up, you can go back and listen to all those sermons that, that I've preached over these past nine weeks. And so we understand that there's been this long hatred for the Jews and these actions of these demons will somehow bring this to the, a climax at this time. The kings of the world will be gathered together for war with one another. But it is a war in which man is ultimately brought against God himself. When we gather again and we preach from this series that I'm in now in three weeks, we're going to see where the armies of the world will attempt to fight against God. It just sounds ludicrous just to say it out loud, but you think that that mere man the the one who was created by God you got to remember something God created the heavens and the earth remember that he did it in 6 days and and he was the one that gave breath to man he is the one who sent his son to die for man once man rebelled against him he is the one that has complete control and complete complete authority over everything God is sovereign in all aspects and here We see the audacity of man as they will rebel against God and continue to rebel against God until he comes back to establish his kingdom and once and for all put an end to Satan in this before the second coming. The war is called the war of the great day of God, the Almighty, verse 14. Modern man often refers to this conflict as Armageddon. We've come up with the word Armageddon. The final conflict will be fought in the valley of Megiddo. The the great day of God, the Almighty, is designed to emphasize that the day or period will fully demonstrate the uh, omnipotence and sovereignty of our God. God was God, is God, and always will be God. And he was sovereign, he is sovereign, and he always will be sovereign the word war here is the Greek word which signifies an entire campaign, not just one battle, and not merely this isolated conflict. We get this notion in our head that the Battle of Armageddon is just going to all of a sudden, all the armies of the world are just going to come together. There's one place and they're going to fight. Well, we know that that's not what happens in wars, right? There's, 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 there's battles and skirmishes, and that's what's going to be going on during this time. What we talk about here at the Battle of Armageddon it's the final battle. Where all the forces come together to do battle uh, with one another, then ultimately turn, they join forces to attack God. And so what we have in view here is a major war in the sense of World War II, except the whole world will be involved. So here's the world war, which extends over the entire last half of the tribulation. Involving several phases of invasions in co- Palestine conflicts. It's going to be a period of warfare during these three and a half years. This will finally culminate in the gathering of all the nations at the very end of the tribulation at Harmageddon. And Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11.40 talks about that. Joel describes it this in chapter 3 of his prophecy. And describes these military events that will culminate in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15 with me here in this chapter. This verse is a, in parentheses in your Bible. is written to the faithful remnant of the tribulation to give them comfort. Remember who is alive now? Who are the believers that are alive? Not you and I. You and I have been. If we were alive at the time of the rapture, we would be taken out. And let, and let me say this again because somebody asked this question uh, this week and wanted to know. He said, Pastor, what what, what happens? I got, I just, I'm just a little bit confused. What happens to, you know, the family members that I know that love Jesus have died. What, what are they doing? Where are they at? And I said, well, let me make this perfectly clear for the hundred thousandth time. I want to make this perfectly clear to everybody. There is no soul sleep. When somebody that we love departs from this life who knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, what does that mean? It means that they have put their faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, not in their own works. You see, so many people live today and say, "Well, I'm a good person. I don't need God. I don't. I don't need saving." Who, who are you to tell me that I'm a bad person? Well, I'm not. I'm not telling you that. The Bible tells you that. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's not one that seeks after God. Not one of us. Someone asked me after the first service. He said, "Well, Pastor, he said, I'm. I'm just so concerned about you know the innocent ones." who are being led astray by these false religions. I said, let me clarify your thinking. There is no innocent ones. We're all guilty. That's the first thing we have to stop and realize. We're all guilty. You know that passage in scripture where it says, in Romans chapter 9, it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, before one or the other had done anything right or wrong, so that God's election would be Shown and magnified. And you know what the question I always get is, how could God hate Esau? You know what the better question is? How could God love Jacob? That's the better question. Why would he bother with us? We, we, are, we are rebellious people from the time that we come out of our mother's womb, the intentions of our heart. The Bible says this, not Pastor Mark. The Bible tells you it's evil. That's the intent of our hearts is to do evil. And so there's none that seeks after to do righteousness. Oh, we can do good things, but we're not seeking after God. And so not until that time that God, just like He did Paul, removed the scales. I was blind, and now I see. see. You see, you were blind. You couldn't see the truth. God removes the scales from your eyes, and you believe the Scriptures. You believe that all those times that people told you that the only way to get to heaven was not through a relationship with a religion, not because you're a good person, but that you understand that Christ, who was perfect, without born without sin, was God incarnate, 100% God and 100% man, that He lived a life that was holy and pleasing to God, the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb that had no blemish on it, who went to the cross willingly, who was He was scourged where his his back was laid bare. He was hung naked and nailed to a cross and humiliated in front of a whole evil world. And on that cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he's crying out in anguish at the pain of the crucifixion and the worst suffering of the wrath of God that was poured out on him. The anger that God had against sin, against your sin, against my sin, was poured out on his son. And then when his son said those beautiful words, it is finished to tell us die. When he cried that out, because at that moment, God paid the ultimate price for your sin. He took out His anger against your sin on His Son. And the wrath that was meant for you and for me, we were shown mercy and grace. And when God rose His Son from the grave on that third day, and Jesus conquered death once and for all, all of us who are in Christ will live forever with Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your eyes were made to see spiritually. Your heart was turned from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And you receive Christ as Savior. And so we can rejoice with that. Amen? As Christians. But those who do not know Him, they are not innocent. Those who don't know Him and, and reject Him to the bitter end, and we see that in the, in the book, just read from Scripture today at the end of the passage, they still would not repent after all that they had seen and all they had gone through, still will not repent. Oh woe be unto those the bible tells us their suffering will be graver than anybody else it's hard for us to imagine because in our mind the worst punishment in hell should be for child molesters and murderers and rapists but not just grandma who doesn't believe in christ or tries to teach others it's sweet lady that comes knocks on your door and preaches to you a doctrine of hell from the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. God says, Woe be unto them. Better a millstone be tied around your neck than to try to lead one of the little ones astray. You know who the little ones are? They're believers. They're believers. And so when those sweet little people come to your door, they are trying to teach you the doctrine of demons. And we who have know the truth... Are we the ones knocking on doors? Are we are we too ashamed of that? We we don't want to be classified as that. We talk about Jesus. I remember before I came to saving faith, we were driving yesterday. We went to somebody's house for dinner, and we were driving headed out to uh, Chula, not to Chula. Where are you, Jetersville? I'm still learning. We're heading out to Jetersville. And, uh, and we passed the little Catholic church. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was raised as a Catholic and uh, believed all the lies that I was taught from a young child. I, I would go into cathedrals in Europe. I would pray to the saints. They have beautiful statues of saints. Beautiful statues. I mean, you've seen the cathedrals. You see, if you've never been to one, you've seen the pictures of them been in there. When my dad was in the army, we lived in Germany. And we did all we did all this. My mom loved going to this place. Remember, she's Italian. We went to Italy. We, we saw all these beautiful cathedral, cathedrals. And I would go in there and I, I couldn't wait to light a little candle and, and uh, throw my little money in the thing so I could pray to a saint. And I would pray to a saint. Jesus was always too busy to talk to me so you had to pray to the saints. And I and that followed me all my life. I became a police officer. When I was a police officer at 21, my mom bought me a saint uh, Michael's necklace. You know why you say Michael's necklace? Because it's the Patriots' state of police. And so that was to protect me from getting shot. And uh, and I didn't get shot, so some people say it worked, right? No. But that's what I believed. And I, and I, and I believed, and I, and I couldn't remember, when I first came in contact with her on the front row, my wife at 15, and I went to a little church called Salem Baptist Church on Centralia Road. A white church. You walk in there, First service I ever heard, the preacher's sitting there, and he's typical, typical independent Baptist preacher in the 70s. I want you to picture this, okay? You walk in there playing music I'd never heard before. I thought people were dying in there. It was this gospel stuff. And uh, they're up there, and and, and and there's about 50 people in the church maybe, and I'm sitting right over there with Kathy. I'm sitting there because she's pretty, and I just wanted to go anywhere she was at. And this guy starts preaching, and he pointed his finger at me and going, Boy, you're going to hell, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what me? And I'm like, no, no, you got it wrong. I'm Catholic. You understand that? I get to go. You guys are Protestants. You protested. Y'all are all going to hell. You'll burn because you. And and I just went about my business, and, and I remember thinking of all this stuff, and and I, and I thought to myself, why do you always talk about Jesus? Why do you always talk about Jesus? We don't need to be talking about him. He's part of the Trinity, but come on, man! You just you wait. You're Jesus freaks. Lord, when I got saved, did that change? When I got saved and realized that my whole plan for redemption was based on a lie, it was based that I was baptized as a baby, I was confirmed as a first grader, I went to, excuse me, a holy a first communion as a first grader, and then confirmation as a fifth grader. And then going to mass on Friday in Catholic schools, going to see the priest and confess my sins to him because the Catholic doctrine says if you do not confess your sin, it's not forgiven. And I go through my whole life like that until I'm 20 years old and I get married inside a Catholic church. Gotta get married in Catholic church. Gotta get there. Gotta get, so we stand getting married. And um, and I remember that in in there and having that whole ceremony. And then we're going to go to mass on Saturday nights and, and after we got married. And, and we go to Mass on Saturday night. I asked Kathy, do you ever remember, because she went with me, I said, do you ever remember anything the priest ever said? No. The only thing I ever remember was we'd get in there, don't talk to anybody, it'll be over in 45 minutes and we leave and we fulfilled our obligation. check the box. When I got saved, everything changed because it was, my, it was my desire, my hunger to know the Word. For the first time, I knew all the stories. But it was the first time in my life I had a hunger for the Word of God. To know the one who saved me. I I, I never knew I could have a personal relationship with Christ. I had to go see a priest to get anything. It was that way it was. And and when when you think of, of that, and you think of all the things that man has put in place to hinder our relationship with God, it's a wonder any of us come to saving faith. And yet God, in His mercy and grace, tells us, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. So this passage here, it may seem strange, but I want to tell you something. When he says the word behold, understand this, Jesus is saying stop. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention and think and take note about what I'm getting ready to say. I'm coming, he warns. These are the saints that have gotten saved during the tribulation period. As they get a hold of a Bible and they read these words and they see all this stuff going on around him. Behold, I am coming like a thief. And you've got to understand something. The way this is written in the Greek is what we call a prophetic present which views a future event as a certain, As a certainty. As though it already in the process of occurring. So what Jesus is saying is, this is gonna happen. This is happening, okay? This is what's gonna happen. Here the Lord is assuring all these tribulation saints that everything they've gone through, if you're alive up to this point in the tribulation, that he is coming back, and it's a certainty. Just as a thief in the night. When you think of a thief coming, we know, especially all the years in law enforcement, Thieves don't call you up and say, "Hey, I'd like to make an appointment next Wednesday at two o'clock in the morning. Would you mind leaving your garage door unlocked so I can come in and steal all the things I need to steal? Turn your alarm off, make sure the dogs are up." Doesn't do that, does he? When does the thief come when you least expect it? There's nothing more violated. I, you know, I was. I learned this as, as a police officer. Outside of a of, a, of a, an, a physical assault, a sexual assault. There's nothing more traumatizing to a person is to come home and find their house broken into. It's your castle. When you walk in your house and the door's kicked in, you've, you come home from work and you've been violated. You've, some, some stranger has come in your house, ransacked your stuff, stole stuff from you. It, you wouldn't think it is, but I, countless times that I, I would see people just stand, just crying or in shock of this happening and God is saying that I'm going to come just like that. You're not going to expect it. The believers are warned though to stay awake, producing righteousness for the Lord. They are to live with a, a view of his return. How's that apply to us? We should be living that way now. We don't know when the Lord is going to come back and collect his church at the rapture. We should be living for him. You see, a special blessing or happiness is promised to the believer, even in these terrible and horrible times of the tribulation, if he follows the warnings and exhortations of this verse. He says he's, they're told two things. One, to stay awake. That's the first thing they're told stay awake. It refers to one who has the right priorities in their living for the Lord and his return. I ask you, Christian, are you staying awake? Are you awake? I don't mean through the sermon, I don't mean it's not nighttime, what I'm talking about, are you anticipating, are you living for the return of Christ? Is your mind, is your day occupied with the things of Christ? Or is it always everything but him? And I love this part. This 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 part where it's at first he says to stay awake, second he says he keeps his garments. What in the world is he trying to say he keeps his garments? Here is the fruit, the garment is the fruit, the result of you living a godly life. So he tells us to stay awake, which means to be in fellowship, be part of the local body, serve the local body, live for Christ out in the world. We live in in horrible times, Just, just horrible times. We saw that last week. We saw man's inhumanity to man, and we see that every day in the news. And it's just going to get continue to get worse and worse. But how do we, how does the world see us? How do they see you as a believer? You've heard me say it before. If you say you're an apple tree, you better be producing apples. If you're a Christian and you say you're a Christian, you better be producing the fruits of the Spirit. Are you clothed with the things of God, with the fruits of the Spirit? Are those evidence in your life? God says that if you love me, you will keep my commands. Are you clothed with obedience? If you love me, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ, 1 John tells us. Are you clothed with the love of believers? If you love me, if you love me, how many times do you say, I love you, Jesus, but your deeds don't reflect that love? I can tell my wife I love her constantly, but if all I'm ever doing is degrading her, if all I'm ever doing is putting her down, if all I'm ever doing is mocking her, I can say all the time that I love her. You're going to say, you don't love Kathy. You don't love her. You, you, you're you a clanging gong, Pastor Mark. You're a, you're, you're a bunch of noise because you're... I see how you treat her. Well, Christian, what does somebody see in us when we say... I love Jesus. Or do we even say we love Jesus? Well, do we say it? Are we even ashamed to mention His names? And so as we... As as this... Jesus says, as John writes here to us, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keeping His garments refers to those righteous behavior or good which, or good works which the believer wears like a garment. It, it's, it's a practical living for fellowship with Christ. You see... The world cannot see your imputed righteousness from God. They can't see that. They can't can't see it at all. What do they see? They see the way you live. Your life is your testimony. And if your life doesn't reflect Christ, they're not going to see Christ in you. And let me ask you a question. Would somebody want to come to saving faith in Christ because of the way you live your life? Do you have joy in the midst of try are you always a naysayer? Is everything always negative in your life? Are you always looking at the uh, the downside of everything, or, or or does when somebody see you, are they do they see a positive person? I'm not saying a false bravado. Oh, we know this world is going to be a horrible place to live in, and it is a horrible place to live in, folks. We were a long time ago. Separated from a godly nation, America is. We're not there anymore. We started murdering babies in the 70s, murdering them. Oh, well, we're we're one nation under God. Let's just kill all the babies. We legalized that in the 70s. And then what do we do later on? Well, we're gonna we're gonna legalize gay marriage. And then well now it's we've talked about this before. We're gonna we're gonna legalize any kind of the hookup culture, men and women. I well, what. Pastor, what's wrong with that? They're men and women. Well, the Bible says it's fornication. And that's a sin. We don't want, well, we, well, Pastor, you're going to, it's okay to preach against the homosexuals. It's okay to preach against the transvestites, but don't preach about that. And you're stepping on so many toes here. No, the Bible says clearly that this is sin. God looks at his sin. Folks, we need to hate the sin that we see. Stand for righteousness. Be clothed with righteousness. Let people see you live a life that is holy, pleasing to God. Not a perfect life. But be consistent in your walk with your speech. Otherwise, we have an empty profession and we're spiritually naked. And people will see your shame. That's what he's referring to here. They will see your shame because you're not really who you say you are in Romans chapter 13. It makes a similar application to believers for our our day. And in and, and this scene, the past in this sense, the passage in Revelation 16:15 15 is application for us today that that we need to live that life in front of others. We can see events which are unfolding today that could very well be in preparation for the tribulation politically and spiritually and morally and other ways. So, you think about what's going on now. And, and uh, I'm not up to date on everything, but this thing with AI just fascinates me. Because, you all know, I want to go back to the Terminator. And Skynet. You remember when Skynet came online? And boom, and then, and then, and then the world went up in smoke. We see that the world has grown so small. So small. Remember when it took the Mayflower months to get across the Atlantic Ocean from, from England to, to America. And now you can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours by plane and you don't even have to leave your home and you can, and you can Zoom somebody and have a meeting in China right now if you wanted to in real time. The, the, the world has shrunk and and as man is, is coming to this place where we see the political things going on in the world today, the wars that are going on, the spiritual corruption of even so-called churches of God, where people will stand in pulpits in America today and claim that Jesus isn't the only way and yet claim to be a Christian church. The morality of our nation has just has gone in the toilet where you're looked at as something strange when you say, hey, I'm waiting for marriage before I engage in intimate behavior with my fiancé, let alone boyfriend or girlfriend. The world looks at you and laughs. What? Do you realize this is 2023? Yeah, and I realize the same God who created the heavens and the earth, the same God who sits on sits on His throne, gave us the commands for us to obey. We don't get to change the commands because our culture changes. God does not change. We need to stay steadfast. We need to be the salt and light in the world. They need to see your love when they're spitting in your, your face. They need to see the salt that you have in the word of truth when they're when they're degrading you and mocking you. You see, we're called to stand firm in the sight of persecution and love them. Not kill them. Love them. That's, that's a hard thing for us as Christians. Because if you're like me, when you watch things on, on, uh, on, on your, your phone that pop up, you see your news feed, you see a YouTube video, you see an Instagram post, and you see some of the vile stuff that the ungodly do. And you know what my first reaction is? Mean, I'll be honest with you. I've watched some of these fights That I see going on, and I'm like, give me my nightstick. Let me jump right in there and wail some tail here, right? (laughs) That's my first human gut reaction. Then immediately the Holy Spirit says, Who are you? I call you to love them. I call you to die to share the gospel for them, not kill them. Oh, you know your pastor's heart is to be like Paul. Preach until the day God calls me home. And my mind goes, and I'm standing up here and ranting and raving, and you're going to the elders, it's time for Pastor Mark to go in the basement. <laughs> but oh, may I have the faith that Paul had, dragged outside of this church, hands over the top of my head, tied to a post, and whipped with 39 lashes. And say, Mark Wells, you have been condemned by the state for preaching the gospel. If you preach it again, we will whip you again. Do I? Will I have the courage to say, do what you will. I cannot forsake the calling God has in my life. You see, Christian, we need to be prepared for that. And we can't be prepared for that by being angry at people what they post on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. We need to stand firm for God. Let us... Be clothed in righteousness. And then we see the battle in verse 16. And they gathered them together at a place which is the Hebrew called Harmageddon. Joel prophesied of this. If you're taking notes, Joel chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to be reading from that. If you want to turn in your Bibles, go to the uh, the gospel. Go to Joel, the prophet Joel, verse 3. It's not going to be on your screen. uh, Chapter 3, verse 2. And then I'm going to be reading 9 through 13. Joel chapter 3. Starting in verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. I go down to verse 9. Call out this message among the nations. Set yourselves apart for a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the men of war approach. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves. There bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused up. And come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge. All the surrounding nations. Send in the sickle. For the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the vine press, wine press is full. The vats overlo- overflow. For their evil is great. Here is that battle. The location of that war is Armageddon. Where we get the name Armageddon. This is the final battle. Before the returning of the Lord, this major war that will occur. The evidence from Scripture seems to point to the conclusion that this is a climax of a series of military events described in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, we read, And at the time of the end, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter lands, overflow them, and pass through. And he will also enter the beautiful land. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of the hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will send forth his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will rule over the hidden treasures of gold and silver, and over all the desirable things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But reports from the east and from the north will dismay him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and devote many to destruction. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas of the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. How is this war that's being described here where the world government seems to be under the control of Satan at this time, right? Did we talk about that? Well, just like anything else in the world, people get tired and they want to rule themselves. There will be... Just like there is, I, I, got, I want what you got. I want what you got, and I'm going to take it. So this, this, this conflict, this war that occurs now uh, among the nations is, is, is during this later part of the tribulation, this, as this world empire starts to implode upon itself, and there's rebellion within the empire. The armies of the world contending for honors on the battlefield at the very time of the second coming of Christ do all turn, however, so you've got these two conflicting armies that are at war. And they will come and they will meet in Armageddon. And then when the Lord returns, they will turn from fighting each other and attempt to fight God. Oh, how pitiful, how pitiful man can be. And so here we see this. As, and, and it will be the final challenge to divine sovereignty and power as the military might of the world of that day will be engaged in fighting on the very day that Christ returns. Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Indeed, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city will go forth in exile, but those left to the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. Describing the final battle, the final one where God says, Enough is enough. This area was the scene, this Armageddon, uh, the, the, uh, this, this place described in Scripture was the place of many battles in the Old Testament such as that of Barak and the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4 and the victory that Gideon had over the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. Here also occurred the death of Saul. The area is not sufficient for the armies of all the world to meet and what the scripture seems to indicate is that this area is the central point of this military conflict which ensues. Actually, the Bible tells us how long this battlefield, this part of the battlefield, will be. It'll be over 185 miles long. So we're thinking from here to Baltimore. I want you you think about that as a battlefield. Right? And how do we get that? Revelation 14.20 tells us. It says, and the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stata. And so that comes out. To 185 miles. When Napoleon, back in the 18th century, marched across this area, he said that all the armies of the world could do battle here because of the broad expanse of that valley. The participants in this war are the king of the north and his allies, Ezekiel chapter 38. And there will be the kings of the west, the ten-nation confederation of the Mediterranean states of Europe. And finally, it will include the kings of the east, the nations east of the Euphrates. No one, no nation will be left out in this final conflict. And so we can't leave today without looking at the seventh bowl. And I'll tell you why this is so important here. It's the final outpouring of God's wrath on sinners in this present earth. So as the nations are doing war, God's not done. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the earth, excuse me, upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne saying, It is done. It is done. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The seventh bowl is emptied into the atmosphere. A loud voice of heaven says it's done. In verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. So here in verse 19, we told that Jerusalem is split into three parts, and the cities of the world collapse from this earthquake. The cities of the world collapse. Collapse. Islands are flooded and mountains disappear. Do you see what's going on here? God is changing the very nature of this planet. Remember, He has wiped out, He has killed the oceans. He has destroyed the fresh water. He has destroyed the land. And now God brings this earthquake and He gets rid of the islands and the mountains disappear. And not only that, then we have giant hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people. From verse twenty-one, that's about a hundred pounds, is what that that is. Those under judgment curse God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible, terrible. And so, as we see this, we see the fate of Babylon the Great, as God avenges the blood of the prophets. And of God, holy people, and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. You see this Babylon the Great represents evil. It represents Satan. It represents his empire. And remember, who is the prince of this world? It's Satan himself now. And God will come back. Who was worthy to open up the seal? Who was worthy? It was Jesus. The Lamb who was slain to receive all honor and glory. He was the one. He will redeem he has redeemed His people. He will redeem the planet. The world mourns for the fall of Babylon. We know that in chapters 18. And, and But heaven rejoices in chapter 19. Jesus Christ then returns in glory to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. And we'll preach on that the next time we get back to this uh, series. Not only does every city of the world come under terrible judgment as a result of the great earthquake which levels... All the monuments of men. All of the monuments of men. But the scripture also indicates this great change to the landscape of the entire world. The sweeping statement is made in verse 20 that every island is affected and every mountain as well. The fierceness of the wrath of God in verse 19, literally the anger of His wrath is manifested in the entire physical earth. The moment of the islands and mountains Excuse me. The movement of the islands and mountains mentioned back in chapter six, verse fourteen, as stemming from the sixth seal, is here carried to a more violent and conclusive, apparently ending for the way that the world looks today. It'll be radically changed in appearance, getting ready for the millennial kingdom. In addition to mentioning the great earthquake, is which is primarily means of divine judgment in the seventh vial. Verse 21 records again this great hail which every stone again as I said is about a hundred pounds. Such a hail from heaven falling upon men would have a devastating effect and would destroy much that was still left standing by the earthquake. We've watched all this happen. We've watched through scripture as as God has poured his wrath out upon this evil world. As he has He is telling people this is what's going to happen. What about us today? If you're sitting here today and you're a believer, this should bring you great comfort knowing that you will not go through this. And this should bring you great comfort because you know what happens. It should bring you great comfort because you know who wins. That God wins, ultimately. Evil will be punished. Have you ever thought to yourself, why doesn't God punish evil now. There'll be a time when he does that. Christian, the question that we have to ask is what about us living here? We live here in Amelia, in Dinwiddie, in Blackstone, in Crewe, in Nottaway, in Powhatan, in Chesterfield, in Richmond. God has brought us together as a body of believers we come and we, we worship together. We fellowship together. We study God's word together. What are we doing with that? Do you leave this place on Sundays and just go, okay, where do we go for lunch? What do we do the rest of the week? Maybe we'll come back next week. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll be here Thursday night. Maybe we won't. Maybe we're here Friday night. Put all that aside. What will you do when God gives you breath in the morning knowing what you know about what the future of the world is? Knowing what you know is the future of those who don't know Christ. Are you salt? Are you light? I'll answer that question for you if you're a Christian, you are. How much light, how much salt depends on how obedient we are to Christ. So I challenge you as as you have... This is the best week in the world to be a Christian. They, you should have joy on your face. You should have an extra pep in your step. And when people ask you, why are you so happy this week? You tell them. I get to go here preaching on Sunday morning and Sunday night. I get to go Thursday. Friday, What's wrong with you? And you can tell them, I'm celebrating this holy week. Can I tell you about it? Can I tell you about Jesus? Oh, I don't want to hear about him. No, oh, no, no, no. Let me tell you how he changed my life. And I was, uh, I was lost in my sin. And when I cried out to God for salvation, he saved me. And no, my life hasn't been perfect. My kids didn't all of a sudden be perfect kids. I wasn't all of a sudden the perfect husband or the perfect wife or the perfect employee. But you know what it did for me? It gave me joy and peace knowing that God loved me enough to send His Son to die for me. So Christian, I challenge you this week. Let the world see the joy of your salvation. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I, I, I'm speaking to you, dear one, today. who You may have been listening to this and you're thinking this is a load of just monarchy that this is you just standing up there, pastor, just preaching from a book written by a bunch of dead guys from 2,000 years ago. I want to speak to you just a moment. And I, I, and I would ask you to hear me set aside all your preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian. And I want to ask you a question. If you were to die this day, where would you spend eternity? Oh, you may say you don't believe in eternity. Well, I'm telling you, there's a God who created this heaven and earth. This was creation, and there is a creator. And if you tell me that you think that you'll get to be with God because you're a good person, I'm here to tell you that The Bible tells you that all your good works are filthy rags when it comes to God. You know what God wants for you to become His child? He wants you to receive His mercy and His grace. He wants you to cry out to Him and acknowledge that He is God. His Son is Jesus Christ, the Savior. That He sent His Son to die in your place. And that all He asks of you is to believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins rose from the dead make him your Lord and Savior this day confess it with your lips the Bible says you're saved your eternity is secure you're with Christ forever but oh dear one I warned you and you are warned if you reject him and today God called your very life away from this place died without Christ, you will spend eternity in hell apart from him. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that to scare you. I ask that you think about your eternal soul. And for you, my brother and sister in Christ, I pray as I pray for myself constantly, Lord, I love you, but I fail miserably. Lord, I love you, and my desire is to be salt and light, but sometimes I feel like I put my light under a basket. Lord, I, I want to be salt, and how many times I'm tasteless. If you're like me, and you've confessed that before the Lord, the Lord forgives us. And He says, Get up, be salt. Be light. Live for me. And so would you pray that prayer for yourself this day? Lord, help me. Show me where I'm failing. Lord, give me the strength not to be afraid of men. In just a moment, I'll stand up front. It's a time of invitation. It's not time to manipulate anybody. I don't tarry long up there. God has called you to be a member of Grace Harvest Baptist Church. You come and you grab this preacher by the hand. You let me know. We're going to have a baptism next week at the end of the 11 o'clock service on the, on the day the Lord rose from the dead. What a glorious day that will be. But I ask you, if have, have you been disobedient and never fallen the Lord in believer's baptism? If so, I, I pray that you come. Grab this preacher by the hand. We won't baptize you today. I will sit and talk with you. I pray that you would come and let me know that's your desire. And some of you, God has spoken to you in a way today that I can never imagine, even begin to think. I pray that you get yourself right with him this day. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, I pray this is the day of your salvation. Father, may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as the Lord leads us.